I'm Louise Cooper. Now, you've had a chance to listen to the More Than A Number podcast, 12 Trillion. And as an extra bonus episode and by popular demand, here's the full interview with Graham Pitt-Kelfie, Chief Financial Officer at Unilever. Graham, I've looked on your website and it states the SDGs are a once in a lifetime opportunity to create a better world as scale and reach mean we can contribute to and benefit from them. But not every company is doing this. Who's been the drive for change? Why is Unilever regarded as being at the forefront of this? Where's the drive coming from to sign up to this? I think it's a couple of things in the case of Unilever. First of all, most companies in the consumer space, because we rely on vibrant and healthy societies and we serve everyday needs of everyday consumers, that you find not just Unilever, but many companies in our sector are quite forward thinking with this. And, you know, frankly, it's not a competitive issue for us. We're all interested in having very healthy markets to serve. And so there's a, there's a sort of a virtuous circle around it. So I do applaud you know, every company in our space, because generally speaking, we do raise the floor on these things and want to keep moving forward. That's a good thing. Just specific to Unilever, I think if you go back and look at our history, our foundation, you know, Lord Lever, the founder of the company and all of the philosophies that he brought around hygiene and nutrition and, uh, you know, pensions and fairness in the workplace and all those things, it's very deeply ingrained in Unilever's psyche and, and therefore it, it uh, it's quite natural for us. Now, Unilever's come up with the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. What is it and what does it do? Well, we first launched it several years ago now. Uh, we call it the USLP. It was pretty radical, I think, and maybe a little bit ahead of its time in those days. And, um, you know, fundamentally, it was about three clear and interrelated priorities. First of all, we wanted to grow our business, absolutely. But in growing the business, we also wanted to reduce our environmental footprint and we wanted to increase the social impact that we have. And we've continued to develop the USLP. We've actually moved it forward quite recently to make it a much more integrated business strategy so that instead of having just a sustainability strategy and a you know, financial and corporate strategy, they're now tightly integrated. And we're trying to make them a little bit simpler. And that simplicity is coming around three core beliefs. The first one is that brands with purpose grow. And the second one is that people with purpose thrive. And the third one is that companies with purpose last. As I said earlier, you know, normally as a CFO, you sort of want to have unique strategies, but this is definitely a scenario where more and more companies thinking this way, I think, benefits everybody. How much time do you spend thinking about these sustainable development goals? Well, we spend a lot. We spend a lot of time in the company on it. Our sustainable business strategy is our strategy. We don't have another separate strategy. So in terms of the discussions we have at our board, uh, the discussions we have as an executive, the discussions we have around our brands in particular, It is really focused on our sustainable business strategy. And in particular, how do we take purpose deeper into our brands? And again, there's a very strong business reason behind that. And that is that more and more of our consumers who are millennials and who are Generation Z, etc., they care about a brand with purpose. And we think and we can show correlation that brands with purpose grow faster. And therefore, this allows us to do good, but also grow our business more quickly and create more value as a consequence. Well, you mentioned their consumers. There are other stakeholders here. You've got shareholders. Unilever is a large quoted company. And you've got potential employees. How much influence have shareholders, potentially employees, had 
committing to the UN's Sustainable Development Goals? Yeah, quite a lot. We're very explicit about the fact that we have a multi-stakeholder approach to our business. So we take account of, as you said, our employees, our, our partners, our customers, our suppliers, you know, the environment, the planet at large, society, etc. I spend a lot of time in the business being clear that across that multi-stakeholder universe, in the case of Unilever, there are two groups whose interests are most primary. The first is our consumers. You know, we're a consumer company, Louise, and the moment that we stop thinking about the consumer is the moment that we stop performing as well as we can. So we put the consumer first in everything that we do. So in that multi-stakeholder environment, the consumer really comes first. And then at the end of the chain, our shareholders are really important. You know, they provide the capital. It's their capital that we're managing. They allow us to exist. They provide the the ability for us to grow our business. And it's important that we provide attractive returns to them. So our vision for the company is to, to, is to have the world's most sustainable business. But in doing that, show and prove and demonstrate that by running the business this way, we deliver superior financial returns. And we measure that by having returns that in the top third total shareholder return of our peer group. So for me, it's very clear. We do a multi-stakeholder model, but it starts with the consumer and it's in the interest of serving our shareholders. And we think if we run our business that way, we'll create more value for longer for those shareholders. Right, let's get specific now. So there's a number of sustainable development goals. There's one about clean water and sanitation. You make bleaches. Or there's one about health and well-being. You make ice cream. I'm not sure how how much um, ice cream contributes to health and well-being, but let's put that to one side. But the United Nations Goal 12 is responsible consumption and production. How has that goal changed the way you do business? Many ways. And you know, you're, you're right, by the way, don't don't shy away of, of pushing us on ice cream. <laughs> Mentally, ice cream can be very good for me. But physically, I think it probably adds inch to my waist. My waist. You know, it, it's it's a, it's an indulgent product. It's 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 fun to have. It lifts people's spirits, etc. But, you know, just let's use ice cream as the example. You know, we've been very, very careful to control the way in which we market ice creams to children. We've been very careful to control the calorie content of the ice creams that we're selling. So we recognize it's indulgent. We recognize that too much of it is not necessarily good for you. And so we do it responsibly. And, uh, you know, we think we run a pretty good ice cream business as a as a consequence. You also mentioned bleach. It's an interesting one. I've, I've always been interested in this because I've got a background in chemistry before I went into finance. But there are always concerns sometimes about artificial chemicals. And, and it's, you know, it's definitely a, an area of rising consumer concern. But the thing about bleach, it's just sodium hypochlorite, you know, it just breaks down into salt and water. And it very much from a cost perspective, from a, an effectiveness and, and an efficiency perspective in terms of providing a fundamental hygiene benefit that is so important around the world. It's a very effective way of doing that. And it's been used for years and years and been shown to be safe under normal use conditions. So we recognize that there can be inconsistencies and inconveniences. We're very transparent about those as a business. And we try to improve incrementally and marginally. So we try and provide a really good ice cream business and a really safe bleach business. Okay, what about laundry detergent? Again, going back to the United Nations, about clean water, about sanitation, about the importance of water supply. There is criticism of some of the components of laundry detergent. Yep, the critical challenge and opportunity indeed with laundry 
is around uh, the way in which people wash their clothes and the use of water in the laundry process. So we have been very active in our R&D programme to manufacture laundry products and make them available in water-stressed areas where the use of water is less than in the normal process. So things which are quick to rinse, products that are low sudding, that encourage effective use and reuse indeed of products. We even had, I mean, this wasn't a terribly big consumer hit, but I remember a product that we came up with a few years ago that allowed you to re-clean your water again and use it for a second time. It's the same with our uh, hair care business. You know, quick rinse shampoos, the use of dry shampoos, the use of leave-on conditioners, etc., are really all there to encourage people to use less water as part of the, the cleaning process. OK, let's move on to this UN Goal 12, responsible consumption and production, particularly your recent announcement on plastics. It's big news. I uh, had the usual joy and pleasure of presenting our results to the investment community and it was a bit of a pivotal moment, actually, because we received a question from the sell side for, I think, the first time I can remember. And what do you mean by the sell side? Is that mean banks who tell fund managers whether to buy or sell your shares? Yeah, from the sell side analyst community, who are the ones who follow the company and they're the ones who will put notes out saying whether our performance was good or bad and whether people should buy or sell our shares or hold our shares. Yeah, exactly. But one very well-respected analyst in the sector chose to use their question uh, to ask about our plastics commitment. Now, specifically, they were asking around the cost of that in our business, how I thought about it as the CFO. Did I think it was an investment worth making? But I was just delighted that in a call that is normally dominated by relatively short-term financial performance, we were able to spend a bit of time on a topic like plastic and the, frankly, you know, big, bold and slightly scary and stretching commitments that we've now made around plastic use. So what are those commitments and how much do you think they'll cost? The critical thing which we've announced is that we are going to reduce the use of virgin plastic in our packaging by 50% by 2025. Now, there's two ways we're going to do that, Louise. The first is we're going to eliminate 100,000 tonnes of plastic from all of our packaging. And that means that this is effectively a design challenge for the business. We're, we've got ideas on how we can do that, but we're going to have to really stretch ourselves to come up with uh, accelerated use of reusable, refillable, naked production packs, etc. What on earth uh, is a naked production? Basically one where you could go in with your own container, with your own reusable pack, and we find a way of delivering the product to you. Visions of you sort of cupping your hands for some shampoo. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's that, those sorts of ideas. And, and they involve, you know, tremendous changes in consumer habit. And that's why it's a very stretching and challenging goal. And as I said, we don't have all the, all the answers. The second thing we announced, which is really important, is that we're going to help to collect and process more plastic packaging than we sell by 2025. And this is one where we need massive collaboration. We need to invest. We need to partner with other companies. We need to partner with retailers, with our customers. We need to partner with other suppliers. We need to partner with the waste management infrastructure in every country in which we operate in order to provide those recovery systems to allow us to achieve that goal. Okay, so this is really interesting. This is kind of gets to the business problem. So Body Shop had recyclable containers 40 years ago, but Body Shop don't just manufacture the shampoo, they sell it. Unilever doesn't sell it. You give it to Tesco to sell or whoever else to sell. You've also got the packaging industry involved here. You've got consumers. How does all of this work together 
And you've just said you've got the waste management companies as well. How do you work with all these different players to achieve a positive outcome? It's one of the reasons why, you know, we alongside, you know, other large companies in our sector are really uniquely placed to be able to achieve this because we have the scale and reach to be able to do that, Louise. But it will mean a lot of effort. It will mean a lot of collaboration. It'll also mean some cost. I mean, I was asked that question last week and part of the question was, well, you know, Graham, it obviously costs money and it does cost money and I know how much money it will cost us for, for next year. You know, why do you believe it's an investment worth making? And, and it goes right back to the strategy of the company. We believe that this is a critical thing for our consumers to appreciate. In order for Unilever to have a license to operate, and we're a big user of plastics, and they, they fulfill a really important role within our supply chain and overall product architecture, we have to find a way of making sure that we are sort of net zero when it comes to plastics by 2025. This is a really important commitment for us. But you're a finance director. You do things like cash flow analysis, net present value, internal weights of return. Have you done the analysis on those 2025 commitments? Yeah, we've got a we've got an idea of of what the on cost would be, and it's a very stretching goal. And and we're, you know there'll be a range of of scenarios and outcomes. What you do with this is you scenario it out. But the best way to start any journey, you know, is to take the first step. And we thought it was really important that we went out publicly with this. And as I said, encourage systemic change in the industry and encourage others to follow. I, I want to be clear, it's not, we don't do these things, you know, to score brownie points and to compete with other companies in the sector. We do it in order to encourage change. And the public commitment, because it's quite interesting, because right at the beginning of our series, we talked to Maersk, the giant shipping company, and they've made this very big commitment on carbon emissions. And they didn't feel that they quite knew what it would cost, but they thought the public commitment saying this out loud was really important to bring people on, to bring politicians on, to bring people with them in the journey because they couldn't do it by themselves. Would you agree with that? It sounds like you're saying the same thing. Yes, I I think you can do as much uh, diligence as you possibly can on what the cost is. But if you believe it's the right thing to do, then first of all, you have to be transparent about the fact you're doing it. All of your stakeholders deserve to know that. Some shareholders, for example, might not think that's a good idea and they might choose to sell your shares. You're better off to be clear about that. But I do very much believe in that idea of creating the ambition and the goal and then finding ways on. These are all multi-year commitments and that then triggers the creativity and drive and investment within the company in order to find a way. And and you can't be precise about it, to your point about precision and cost, but that commitment and that desire to get to a stated objective, I think, is very laudable. You mentioned there's shareholders that may decide to sell your shares. Have you had any of those discussions? No, actually, no. I mean, it's an interesting point, this whole question of ESG. When we first started the USLP, it was very rare, and I'm, I'm being... I'm probably being but can't but, use you can't use acronyms Unilever Sustainable Unilever Sustainable Living Plan there you go it's just so it's just so uh, it's so natural for us to use acronyms for it but uh, honestly I'm, I'm being polite by saying we got the odd question about our sustainable living plan now I have to say I think we're on an absolute inflection point we're at a tipping point now with regard to ESG investing and how quickly has that happened then so there were some shareholders who looked at you as if you were slightly bonkers. Is that fair? And is now everyone on board? Nobody thought we were bonkers. They sort of said, well, that's sort of uh, 
that's you know I kind of get that, but it's it's a bit long term and it's maybe outside my investment window, and I've got plenty of other things to to worry about. Now it's very very real, and the reason it's real is is a very very cool reason. You know, I'm a vice chair of, 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 it's a bit clunky this, it's another acronym actually, but it's called the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Reporting. Michael Bloomberg's the chair, it was set up by Mark Carney, yeah, I think it's four, over four years now I've been, I've been working on the TCFD. And it's an amazing body because it brings together asset owners with asset managers. It brings the shareholders and the companies together and tries to bring the dialogue, in this case around carbon disclosure, into the boardroom, into the relationship between shareholders, the providers of capital, asset owners, and the managers and directors who are responsible for the stewardship of that capital. And I passionately believe in that, that bringing the dialogue into things as, as an integrated part of the investor relations function is fundamentally important and, and it really is, in, to your question, it's changing very quickly. It was very slow change, glacial change really for quite a long period of time and now it is accelerating very quickly. Let's go back to plastics. Are you looking, for example, at bioplastics? I was at my local National Trust property yesterday for a cup of coffee while my daughter was at football training and I've noticed all their drink containers and things are now bioplastics. Is that something you're looking at? Yes, very much so. If you look at um, a lot of our food products under the Knorr brand, you'll find quite a bit of bioplastic being used or, or biomaterials, actually, paper and biodegradable materials being used in the containers that we're using for products there. You know, we're active across multiple, multiple fronts. One of the technologies that we've invested quite a lot in is, is a technology called Creosolve, which is a form of solvolysis, which allows recovery of multi-layer plastics. That's a critical challenge for us because a lot of the volume that we sell, particularly in the big emerging markets that we're present in, so Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, India, Bangladesh, etc., a lot of the volume is sold in sachet form and we're making very rapid progress in our Indian business in particular at moving the proportion which is non-multi-layer and therefore capable of recovery and recycling and more importantly, therefore value within the recovery process which allows the, the recovery activity to take place. There's a lot of very fast process taking place there. The challenge with bioplastics is sometimes they struggle to have the same just basic product performance. Over the course of the life cycle, the reality is that, you know, petrochemical-derived plastics just do a, a really, really good job. And it's why I think it's important that we don't demonise plastics. Plastics have got a really important role within our supply chain, but, you know, we just don't want them to be in the environment, basically. We need to find ways of using the plastic we've got and keeping it out of the environment, but also recognising that many of the alternatives to plastics, for example, like glass, they have a far, far worse carbon footprint, both in manufacturing and in distribution. So it's important that we take action on plastic, but we don't demonise plastic. I've been told Unilever's quite ahead of the game on this. Do you think of it as a first mover advantage or a first mover cost advantage. As an accountant, how do you think about the maybe potential hit to the profit margin compared to the long-term benefits of being further ahead of this and therefore in five years' time you'll be able to do it a lot cheaper than everybody else when maybe there's more regulation comes? I mean, how do you think about the investment, the scalability, the the fact that you think maybe more regulation will be coming? You know, how, how do you go about thinking all about this as the finance director? Well, let's start at a very strategic level. 
you've got to ask the question, if there's an on cost, is the consumer prepared to pay for it? And generally speaking, the answer to that question is no. The, the consumers want the benefits of greener and safer products, more environmentally friendly solutions. But generally speaking, they're not prepared to pay a premium for that. So that then, as a finance director, flips you into cost-saving mode. How do I make that investment and then pull other levers within the P&L in order to offset the impact of that? So we have to find savings in other areas in order to do that. You know, it's interesting, though, since 2008, just the activity that we've taken within our supply chain to be a greener company has saved almost a billion euros by driving eco-efficiency within our factories and not putting hazardous waste out to landfill and reducing the amount of waste we produce every year. So you can find a way of funding it, Louise. It's just a question of finding the space within your P&L. Ultimately, though, we believe, I believe, that if you don't make this investment, then consumers will have a challenge in supporting your brand. In particular, younger consumers who are going to form the belly of our marketplace going forward. And, and that's where moving quickly is important. That's why being clear in the way in which you call it out in the brand itself on the packaging, communicating it clearly. There's no point in doing this if you don't tell the consumer that you've done it. And that, that actually, even for a great marketing company like this can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge. We do a lot of stuff and then we're silent about it. So making sure it lives in the brands is really you important. You mentioned the importance of the consumer, but the other threat could be regulatory that if companies aren't on board with doing this, they will be forced to make their products more recyclable, to reduce their carbon emissions. Is, really? that, is, that, is, that, is that also in the back of your head? You know, we need to be ahead of this because we might be forced upon us. Absolutely right. Ab- absolutely. I mean, we were very early to put a carbon tax in place in Unilever. No, we're, we're not a terribly carbon intensive company in our manufacturing a lot of the carbon footprint is in use of our products, consumer use of our products, rather than manufacturing. But having said that, what we do is we run a shadow carbon-priced project evaluation for any investment we make above a million euros. And similarly, we actually tax each of our businesses with the cost of all the carbon that they will produce in a single year. And that's reduced from their CapEx budget. And that goes to fund a clean energy fund. And I think we're putting about 50 million a year into that clean energy fund. And the clean energy fund is then used for projects within our supply chain that reduce the carbon footprint of our supply chain. And they're they're the two big efforts we make. Now, that's a good benefit in the business, but most importantly, it prepares us better than if we weren't taking action in the event that there was more of a move to carbon taxation. So you're exactly right. It allows you to get ahead of the curve and put the systems and processes in place that should there be increased taxation and regulation, we would be better prepared. And of course, one of the UN's sustainable development goals is about green energy. Um, Let's move on to sustainable palm oil, because again, palm oil, a very important raw material for many of Unilever brands. There's been a lot of criticism from environmental campaigners about particularly slashing and burning rainforest to make space for the growth of palm oil plants. So you've come up with a strategy here. So just tell me what the sustainable palm oil strategy is. It's a very historical product, actually, for Unilever. The very formation of the company was a partnership between the Dutch and UK businesses, which was in some part 
a partnership around the sourcing of palm oil because palm oil was used for margarine and palm oil was used in a great number of um, personal care products by Lever Brothers and soaps, etc. So it's a really important raw material for many, many of our brands. And finding a supply of sustainable and traceable palm oil, we saw many years ago as absolutely vital to the future success of the business. And that's why in 2004, we helped to set up the RSPO, which is the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. And actually last year, we were the first company to publish our entire list of the mills that we use for palm oil. There's a really important thing to recognize about palm oil. It's a highly efficient crop and the alternatives to palm are much, much worse, particularly in terms of the carbon footprint of production and transportation for them. So the critical thing with palm oil is to have traceability, that it comes from sustainable sources, and we're committed to getting to that you know, 100% traceability goal. It's controversial, I know. It's never out of the press. We are always pushed by NGOs and others, and we welcome that. You know, We know that the job isn't finished with regard to palm oil, and we understand and, and completely appreciate the public focus and debate around it. I myself spent four years of my career living in Indonesia, and you can see the damage that deforestation does in large parts of that amazing country. So we're not done yet, but we think we're doing the right things. I mean, this brings up the role of consumers, because it could well be argued that if consumers didn't require cakes that were have a shelf life of six months or cat food that has a shelf life of 18 months, we wouldn't need palm oil or we wouldn't need packaging. Maybe they'd dove shampoo in a slightly grey bottle rather than a pure white bottle. We could recycle more plastic. How important do you think it is for consumers to change the way they think about what they buy? I think, I think the consumer is just another essential part of that end-to-end supply chain. They obviously sit at one end of it. You know, changing consumer behaviour is not easy, but it is, you know, the sort of core competency of a marketing and brands business like Unilever. So it's not the consumer's job to to change. It's the job of the brand owner, i.e. Unilever and other companies in the sector to educate consumers and to, to make that change. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, moving to a circular packaging, you know, where uh, beautiful packaging can be created, for example, which gets sent back to be refilled and comes back to the consumer. It's a very different way of consuming. It doesn't appeal to to everybody, but, you know, it will take time, but it is possible to change people's perceptions and their habits with regard to that. Just look at recycling in the the UK. You know, it's inconceivable that somebody wouldn't recycle now and have different bins outside their, their door. Now, unfortunately, in the UK in particular, the recycling infrastructure is highly fragmented. So even in a single country like the UK, it's hard to get recovery systems which apply at national level because, you know, it's managed by local councils and there are very, very different standards and very different technologies at play with each. But uh, again, you know, that that will take time to change, but something that we are, you know, we're we're committed to doing. A good example is with black plastic. I don't know if listeners realise that most black plastic isn't detectable by conventional recycling recovery systems. So one of the things we've done is to find a pigment that we add into our black plastic now that, so that black bottles like Tresemme or Lynx bottles, etc., because consumers really like black plastic, to your point about grey plastic, but the, uh, the, the black plastic that's now used in Tresemme bottles and Lynx bottles is actually detectable by systems because of uh, 
pigmentation and therefore it's now capable of being detected and recycled. That was Graham Pitkelfie, Chief Financial Officer at Unilever.